Now it's time for the reading and preaching of God's word. Our scripture text for this morning will be read by Wendy, and the sermon will be delivered by our senior pastor, the Reverend Dan McDonald. Our reading today is from Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're beginning a new series today on the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a book that many know, even if you are not a Christian, you've probably heard of it. They were mostly written by King Solomon, but probably compiled by a later editor, and there are multiple authors. Proverbs gives practical wisdom for life in the complex world of beauty and darkness, cruelty and love, unpredictable circumstances, unstable relationships. It gives wisdom and wisdom we need. As a culture, we need wisdom. We want progress against racial injustice, but we're not always sure how. We need wisdom. We, we want to fight and get over covid but we're not always sure how we need wisdom. Parents have kids who are very different from each other and don't have the same parenting style work on each kid. Parents need wisdom. Kids need wisdom to deal with parents who don't seem to get them. We all need wisdom. I remember when I was a young lawyer, I was sent out to try and help mediate a contract to build a house, uh, build a um, uh, commercial building, excuse me, between our client, a, an experienced builder, and another person who was an inexperienced developer. Uh, it had broken down. I was in my first year of law school, and I was sent because a lawsuit was pending. The relationship was about to break up, and I was supposed to go and somehow mediate this conflict and get this thing back on track. But I lacked the practical wisdom. I was just new out of law school. I knew the law. I looked at some of the case law. I had no idea how to do this kind of difficult negotiation and conflict management. And most of us get confronted with similar situations. We're just out of our depth. I don't care where you are in your journey of life or faith. You could be a staunch atheist. You could be a a devout Christian. You need wisdom. We know maybe the basic legal requirements of what's lawful and what's not. But we need help with how to navigate difficult bosses and challenging coworkers, how to deal with relationships that get stuck, how to answer people who seem to be irritable at us, how to deal wisely with money issues, etc., etc. Proverbs, in other words, has the wisdom that all of us need in the practical day-to-day cut-and-thrust murkiness of life. Proverbs was written not to make us smart, It was written to make us wise. Now, Proverbs has various sections, and we're only going to go through the first two. The first section, 1 to 9, is kind of laying the spiritual foundation. And then sort of 10 through 15 deals with these kind of Proverbs of contrast. Um, But we will be looking at these 15 chapters just kind of as a taste for you, to help give you a taste of this profound book. And here in the first seven verses of the first chapter, 
we get the summary of the whole thing. We get, as it were, the title page of the whole thing. And we get three things here in these first seven verses. Firstly, the purpose of the book. The purpose of God's wisdom for you. Secondly, the process of you gaining wisdom. And thirdly, the key to unlock that process for you. The purpose, the process, the key. The purpose, firstly, verses 2 to 4. In, in verses 2 to 4, it says, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, righteousness and equity, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion. Here, we, using the word to as a preface, we see three parallel verses that give us the purpose. It's to know wisdom. It's to receive the instruction of wisdom. And then it's to give it away. This is the purpose of Proverbs. Firstly, to know something. The Hebrew word here for know literally means to just to know it cognitively, to understand its concepts. It's primarily intellectual, like when you have study notes and you sort of, I know this subject, I'm ready for the exam. This is what it means here. You maybe begin to memorize the words. Maybe you've read them and they become familiar to you. You have done the first step. You are knowing something. What are you to know? The Hebrew words are wisdom and instruction. Wisdom is the content. Instruction is the way that you get there. So you know what the process is. You're willing to think about it. That's what it means to know. But there's a second purpose. It's to go deeper than that. It's to receive. To receive what? Instruction in. And now he unpacks what what wisdom is all about. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To receive something in context here means to allow it to have authoritative power and purpose in your life. It means to give this teaching the ability to change you, shape you, modify you, change the way you think, change the way you even desire. It's not just knowledge here. It's knowledge you come under the authority of. You receive it. You don't just see it and know it's there. You receive it as yours. The word literally means to receive as your own. I, uh, when I was a new Christian, I was uh, told to memorize certain verses of the Bible. It was a thing that we were doing as young, young, young people in our, in our church. And uh, one of the verses was in Proverbs. It was called, a soft answer turns away wrath. And you know, I thought it was nice. I, I, I knew it. I could memorize it. I, I, I could cite it for you, etc. But when I got into situations where people were irritated with me or angry or offended, I didn't let it come under me. I would often be sarcastic or flippant, pointing out maybe logical fallacies in the way I was being approached and ignoring their irritation and their emotional offense. But I wasn't allowing it to come over me. You see, you need to allow it to shape you. It was only a couple of years later when I was confronted by a couple of leaders of what I was doing that I began to realize how hurtful it was and that I needed to reshape the way I responded by letting that wisdom be received. Now, what kind of wisdom? This isn't Tony Robbins' make your best life now. This isn't how to succeed, wealth, health. No, no, no. It tells you the content of the wisdom. Wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. That's what you're to accept. 
Proverbs is meant to make you someone who promotes shalom, flourishing in your culture by being one who is wise in your actions of dealing in ways that are right, in ways that are just, and in ways that are equitable. And don't we need people like that? Don't we need a society? Wouldn't our society flourish if we were a society of justice where everyone was given the same treatment by corporations, by the law, by the culture? Wouldn't we be better if basic fairness, equity, that's what it means. It means a level, literally a level plane where we get the term level playing field. If everyone had the same playing field, righteousness, if everyone had integrity, uprightness, did what was right as, as often as they possibly could and own when they did wrong, wouldn't it be great if you were like that? Wouldn't it be great if our culture was infused with three, these three values? Yes. That's the wisdom. It's moral. It's ethical. It's not just competence. We're to know. What is it? We're to receive. Come under it. And finally, we're to give. What does it say? To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and instruction to the young. Now, this is a fascinating combination of words here. It's it's, it's one of these kind of riddle things. And, and Proverbs comes in very many forms. The book of Proverbs has many kinds of sayings. Short, pithy sayings, antithetical sayings, better than sayings, riddles. And this is one of those that's a little murky until you look at how they go together. Prudence means to be cunning. And it can have a negative or a positive kind of connotation. Negatively, it means crafty, sneaky, manipulative. But as we already heard, the things that you're supposed to be accomplishing with this prudence are justice, equity, uprightness, or righteousness. And the word that comes with it, this word knowledge, it's again, that's a hard Hebrew word. This word knowledge doesn't mean the cognitive knowledge of the previous word. This word means to have the right desires and longings as a result of what you know and who you are. It is used in the Old Testament sometimes as an actual synonym for this word wisdom. It's a morally directed knowledge. So here it says we have someone who can give away that kind of proper, moral, beautiful longings. Who can instruct. Who has the savvy to know how to get the right things done in the right way. And who can pass it on to who? The simple and the young. The simple means people haven't really been confronted with this wisdom to either accept, receive, or reject it. So it could mean people who are outside, in this case the Jewish faith community, they don't know the words and wisdom of God. In our case, it's probably our secular skeptical community would qualify here. So not simple as in what it means is unfamiliar with these words. And then the young who by their youth are unfamiliar with these words. So let's wrap this up <clears throat> because here, this thing, this verse, this is the very center of the passage. The passage is shaped with a center and then a bunch of wings that point toward it. And this verse here is the central passage. This structure is called a chiasm. It's like if you ever see a flock of geese, there's a center one at the, top, at the apex and then everyone's kind of following in the slipstream. 
That's what this looks like. This, this verse, to give prudence, this is the epicenter of verses 2 to 6. And what it says is, the purpose of Proverbs is to make disciples, to learn, to receive, to grow, such that you can give away to the next generation of the faith community, both those who come into the community by believing it and those who grow in it, to make disciples. This is the purpose of Proverbs, to bring human flourishing by making disciples of the church, by passing this wisdom on from the mature and the wise to the simple and the young. How? How do you do it? Well, the process is really here in verses 5 and 6. When I was leaving my law office with that client to do that thing that I had no idea what to do, I stopped in at the senior partner whose client it was. And I said, are you sure you want me? I really don't know how to do mediations. I don't know how to do conflict resolution. You know, it's my first year. He said, I know. He says, but I can't train you in how to do this better than my client can. So swallow your pride. Let him lead the discussions. It feels like it's a legal dispute, and that's why you're there, and the other lawyer's going to start, and he's going to try and dominate. Just let my client take over. See what he was saying to me? He was saying that the process of gaining wisdom starts with being willing to learn realizing you don't know everything. I knew stuff, but I knew I needed wisdom. And he said, be willing to accept it from someone who's wiser. And that's exactly what it says here. Verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. There's the process. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, that's the, some of the various types of words of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands, obtain guidance. Do you hear that? What do wise people do? They increase in learning. They don't think they've arrived. You see, to hear is to diligently keep putting yourself under the words of God, the wisdom of God, the gospel, so you can be transformed by and reshaped by the inherent power of the wisdom of God as you read it and know it. They hear. That word means to listen with attention for the purposes of learning and receiving. So wise people are learners. They're constantly listening, constantly letting themselves be under the authority of God's wisdom. And this is a fundamental and profound point of the book of Hebrews. In Proverbs, the wise person isn't the most knowledgeable person, and the wise person hasn't necessarily arrived. When we think someone is full of wisdom, we tend to think they have so much experience and learning that they've arrived. But not so here. Because wisdom here is more than just content. It's more than just experience. You see, the last part gives you the clue. It says they obtain guidance. From where? From God. There's a relational element here. Wise people have the humility to always be searching for more wisdom and understanding and insight from God. Wise people don't think they're wise. 
Wise people think God is wise and are constantly going to Him for more wisdom. This is a key to understanding Proverbs. The wise person isn't always the most knowledgeable person, but the wise person is always humble and dependent, willing to put themselves under the wisdom of God, putting themselves in a dependent relationship with God and with His wisdom. They sit under Him and under it. They seek it diligently, daily. They accumulate, saturate themselves in it, remind themselves in it, keep going back to it. Men and women, time doesn't make you wise. Knowledge doesn't make you wise. I've seen many older people who are quite foolish. I've been one of them many times. I've seen many brilliant and learned people who are very foolish. And I've seen many younger people who are quite wise. Because a wise person is not defined primarily by the knowledge you have, but by the attitude you possess, the relationship you have with God and wisdom. Wise people humble themselves and put themselves under the authority of Him who is all wisdom. And that gets us to our final point. All that we have said so far, the purpose of wisdom to grow wise people who can disciple others in wisdom. The process of wisdom, diligently putting yourself under it as a dependent and humble person, leads to the key to wisdom, and it's found in verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of da'at, the Hebrew word for knowledge, which I'd say is a synonym for wisdom, and that's why it's translated wisdom in most English translations. We'll look at the word fear of the Lord in a minute and for an extended time, but let's just look at this word beginning for a moment. Solomon here, when he uses the word beginning, seems to have both a, a temporal sense and a ontological, mm, wrong word, foundational sense. It's a temporal sense. It's, it's where you start. To begin a journey for true wisdom, you start with the fear of the Lord. There's no other path to true wisdom than going to God for it because God is the God of all wisdom. It is the beginning place, the starting place, the initial place. In Latin, the initium. But as as Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke put it in his commentary, it's not just the initium. It's the principium. It's not just the temporal beginning. It's the foundational everything. It is a principal truth of the book of Proverbs, and the principal principle of the book of Proverbs is this. The fear of the Lord starts, undergirds, and finishes your journey of wisdom. It's what starts you. It's what unlocks the door. To fear God is to come under His authority. It's what undergirds every step of the process, and it's the goal. Fear of the Lord is the goal of wisdom. It's the beginning and the end, if you will. So what now is this fear of the Lord? It is not fear as we normally describe it. This is one of those Hebrew words that's most difficult to translate into English because it has too many shades of meaning. Tim Keller defines it this way, the fear of the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and His love. That's pretty good. He continues, when you find yourself in the presence of someone you so revere, someone you are in awe of, you tremble. It's a positive fear. You are afraid you will disappoint or dishonor this person. This positive fear is filled with love. 
It's a joyful fear. That is what the fear of the Lord is. That's a pretty good definition. I'm not sure I can do better. But there are some shades of that word fear that we still need to explore. Dr. Welke explores it well when he says this, that the word fear contains several English ideas. Love, trust, respect, awe, wonder, and fear. One of his striking quotes in his commentary about the fear of the Lord is this, rooted in their faith in God, they believe God's promises and love Him. They believe His threats and fear Him. Both Walke and Keller use an illustration from famous Oxford professor and author of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, who has a beaver in this legendary place of Narnia telling the children who are the protagonists about this great lion, Aslan, who sounds fierce and terrifying, and they say, is he safe? And the beaver says, of course not, but he's good. And that gets to this idea a little bit. The God who created all things, the God of wonder, awe, and beauty, the God whose splendor blinds every person in the Bible who sees him face to face, as it were, with the majesty of his beauty and holiness. This God of infinite joy and love and goodness is also holy. And his intense love of things that are lovely and hatred of things that are morally wrong is what makes us pause. Because holiness immediately puts us up with the reality of who we are. Most of us know we don't want him to gaze at us when we're gazing at him. And because we know what he'll see in us, that we don't fear him. We don't put ourselves under his authority and want to please him in the way that Tim Keller described. My own definition is this. To fear God is to be so in awe of, so in wonder at, and so in love with the God who is and the God who created and redeemed you, that you center your life around him and all his ways. In the Bible, the general usage of the term to fear has this idea of centering your life around. When you fear people, it means you center your life around pleasing them. And we see that all the time in our culture. If we fear something, we make it our initium and our principium. We make it the way we start, and we make it the thing that undergirds how we move through life. So, Make wealth your center, and what will you do? You'll begin your day thinking about it. You will direct your schedule toward achieving wealth. It will underguard your decisions, your desires, your priorities, your scheduling, your spending. You see, lack of money then becomes your hell. Gaining money becomes your path of salvation. Wealth becomes your heaven. Do you see what you're doing? You've created a whole plan of salvation. You've created a whole other religious system. You have a whole other center. You fear something else. It is like a God unto you. It shapes you. It centers you. It's the same with relationships. If you fear people, you will start each day wondering how to keep people liking you. It will undergird your choices, your relationships, your decisions. Your hell is being rejected. Your salvation is found in being loved. 
And the process of being redeemed from rejection to that is to make people like you whatever it takes. And so, you see, the gospel says that we all, wherever we are in our journey of faith, we all do this. We all create these counterfeit centers. We all fear these counterfeit gods. I don't know what rivals the true God in your life. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but do some self-inventory. Whom or what do you fear? It may be something impersonal like wealth, but it has that same power to shape you and control you and get into your desires and longings and focus. It indeed functions like a Savior, like a God. So how do we get from where we are, where we want what we want, and we put these false gods in place of the true God. See, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53 says all like sheep have gone astray. We've moved everyone to our own way. That's what we do. Because we don't want to give control to God. It seems too scary. So we'll give it to wealth because wealth is not a person. But here's the problem with wealth or popularity. They can't love you either. But this God, this God has given us a way forward. Because we who don't tend to fear Him and put ourselves under Him and therefore are afraid of Him, have a way forward because one human being has come and he's the one who did fear God and that's Jesus Christ God's beloved son God in human flesh fully human he and he alone feared God completely with every fiber of his being he fulfilled God's plan that was his whole desire God's plan for him and for us He lived a life of perfect goodness, perfectly following all of God's ways, and at the end of his life surprised the world by revealing the secret plan God had for you and for me, and that is that God was going to find a way around our counterfeit gods, around our selfish, offensive independence and autonomy. God was going to find a way to pour grace over our sin and forgive the moral debt that we owe to his holiness. Jesus Christ never said a wrong word, never thought a wrong thought. It was amazing, filled with this prudence, this knowledge, this discretion. He who feared God went to a cross and died for we who do not fear God, so that we who fear not God may experience the forgiveness and the grace of God. And we can stop being afraid of God because the judgment of God has fallen on His Son, instead of us. And now God opens up his arms and says, come. Come without fear. My grace and mercy will cover you because Christ has paid for you. He made him who knew no sin, feared God perfectly, to become sin for us, that we, we who defy God all the time, might become the righteousness of God in him, Jesus. He died for you. He took the guilt that attracts God's displeasure and he paid for it for you. So are the threats of God's justice empty? No, Dr. Walkie is dead right. But they've been fulfilled in Jesus.
You see, God at his own expense took his threats and poured them out on his own son. And when you come to Jesus and believe in him, and Jesus comes into your life, full forgiveness comes in, full salvation from everything you did wrong, from the real hell, which is alienation from the real God, that has been paid for. Salvation has been accomplished. That's why Paul can say this about Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, because of, Jesus, because of him, God's love, you are in Christ Jesus. You've received Jesus as a gift. He's talking to Christians. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Do you hear that? When you have Jesus, God's wisdom is given to you as well as his forgiveness. You are on the journey of wisdom. Skeptic, if you're here and you're still investigating or curious about the faith, you need to start with the foundation. And the foundation is faith in Jesus who died for you. Come to him. Ask him to apply his death to your sins. Say, can your forgiveness extend to me? I'm asking for it. Please give it to me. I come under you for forgiveness. I can't I can't fear God the way he should be feared. I can't center my life, but you did. Can I exchange my failure for your beautiful life? And Jesus will do that. Ask him. If you're here and you're a Christian, and that foundation is already yours, you have begun the journey of wisdom. You are related to God as a dependent child. Now, take that and dive deep into it. Come to him diligently, dependently, releasing your own wisdom, releasing the wisdom of the culture, the wisdom of social media, and saying, here in God's words is true wisdom for living, not out there in the people who are still simple, who are yet still unlearned about the wisdom of God. Come to him diligently. Come to him dependently. Go to wise Christians, those who have diligently studied and put themselves under God's authority. Let them pass on God's wisdom to you. Don't let this culture's present cynicism about older generations distort the truth that many people have treasures of wisdom by being dependent on God for decades. Let them help transmit this to us. We went into that meeting. Me, this accomplished, experienced builder, and the other inexperienced developer and his lawyer. That lawyer took over, started barking out timeline violations, increased prices that violated the contract, He had already started talking about ripping the contract up. He had a lawsuit in his hand, which he showed us. We're going to get another builder. All kinds of stuff. I tried to push back. I tried to get in there, but he was way better than I was, way more experienced. I was getting crushed. felt a tiny tap on my shoulder. So I remembered the words of my senior partner and said, would you like to say something? And my client began to speak. And he looked the other client in the eye. And he said, you remember when we began to build our partnership? Remember the goals we desired to gain together? He looked the inexperienced developer in the eye and talked about the upcoming change in building codes and how he was going to help guide him through that. 
and the fact that builders always needed margins for these kind of things and didn't the developer remember that. The room got calm. He bled the emotion right out of the room. He talked about the cost of how much it would cost to get someone to come in right now halfway through. He talked about the overheated construction market, how materials were not only going up, but builders were totally overmaxed, and it would be 20 to 30 percent more expensive to get someone to come in. He talked about the time delay, and he gave them a price for every day that the building would be delayed. The, the other lawyer kept interrupting him several times, trying to get back into the contractual violations. And my client just kept talking. Common sense business realities, common goals, common desires. And she said, that's why I needed to change the price. And then just at the right time, he said, in this market, who are you going to get to finish this project? He lowered the boom. He got everything in his notes that he wanted to get from the meeting. It was back on. Prices were elevated. Building codes came in. He actually needed them. He was actually doing something righteous. And I learned wisdom that day. My client, who was paying me, paid me to be my tutor. Men and women, there's someone out there who's not a builder of buildings, but the creator and architect of the whole universe. He's willing to teach you and I wisdom, practical wisdom for living, and he's not asking us to pay him for it. He has paid an infinite price for the relationship to give us wisdom. He's given his beloved son on a cross to pay for your and my sins so that he can tutor us. And the question is, will we go to him? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Put our egos aside. Take that awe and wonder and love and gratitude and go to him in dependence and trust and we will begin to become wise indeed. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us and I pray now that we, particularly we, who know about the love of Jesus, who know about the cross and the forgiveness of Jesus, we, in love and trust, would fear you, and in fear we would come to you for wisdom. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we have a couple of questions before uh, we finish uh, the Q&A. The first question is, uh, how do you square this idea with perfect love casts out fear? The word fear that you are quoting here in the Greek is in context meaning servile fear, the fear of punishment fear. So perfect love, the perfect love of God poured out in the, in the grace and unconditional love and mercy and infinite forgiveness of Jesus casts out fear. We have no fear of punishment. But it should actually increase godly fear, centering your life. You know why you can trust God? Because he's forgiven everything at his own cost. Who do you know that you can center your life on who's that loving, that forgiving, that knowledgeable about you and all of your weaknesses and sins and that forgiving of you. You know no one like God as he's expressed himself in Jesus. That's why that kind of centering fear, love, awe, honor, worship can be given because this kind of fear, the fear you've quoted, servile fear of punishment has been banished for the Christian. Great question.
Is it wrong to point out or correct logical fallacies in people's arguments, especially when it's regarding Bible theology? Uh, No, it's not wrong to correct logical fallacies. It's quite right to correct wrong arguments. Paul does it all throughout the New Testament. In fact, he challenges the Galatians that their view of Christianity, which was being distorted by a group called Judaizers, was being infected in such a way that it was becoming a false gospel. He had very strong words. So it's not wrong, but there are ways to do it that are more wise than others. Condescending, sarcastic approaches to deep, intense, careful, important spiritual arguments are not the way to do it. Look at how Jesus approached. When they were condescending, when they were self-righteous, when they were trying to trap him, he would speak sharply to the religious elite and authorities. But to the most people who were honestly seeking answers, he was careful, kind, patient, loving. Look what, look what he did for Peter. Lord, I will, I will never forsake you. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. A week later, less than a week, I don't know, maybe a week or a month later, after he'd been risen and seen people, he said, Peter, do you love me? I restore you. Feed my sheep. Can unbelievers have true wisdom? Unbelievers can have a kind of true wisdom, not this kind of true wisdom, because this is God's wisdom. If you're not yet a Christian and you have not yet come to see Jesus as who He is, and you've not yet come to understand your own need of forgiveness, and you haven't come to see God as this loving Creator who's also sacrificed His Son, this whole picture of the world, this whole set of understandings of the world is the beginning of true wisdom. So, so you, can have a re- you can have real knowledge. You can have wise ways to solve things, and it's throughout. Throughout our literature, there are a lot of wise things, but this kind of wisdom the wisdom of the most profound things, and then how to live in light of these most profound realities is found in the gospel. I think that's enough. I'll answer the rest later. But now let's pray a prayer of response. Father, I thank you that you've given us true wisdom, and his name is Jesus. Help us now, by your grace, to come under the authority of his forgiveness and flee to him for the forgiveness of all our sins, and then to come under the authority of his teaching, to be guided and shaped into new people by the Spirit of Jesus in us and by the Word of Jesus in the Gospel, in the Scriptures. We thank you and praise you. Help us to respond to this knowledge by increasing in our dependence and our humility, we pray in Christ's name.